Welcome back. You are still listening to the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are now in overtime and we've got some good stuff. We're uh, going to get a conservative perspective on some of the issues facing workers in the state with talk radio host Michael Yaffe. We're going to bring you the latest on the Postal Service reform legislation that just passed the U.S. House of Representatives and we're going to answer your voicemails. So let's get started. Uh, Michael Yaffe is a conservative talk radio host on one of the stations that we air on. You can hear him in the mornings, and he's taking some time this evening. Remember that we're pre-taping since we're going to be going down to Bessemer to make house calls with RWDSU this weekend. Uh, so he's actually, and we've had a lot of technical difficulties. It is currently storming, and the power went out. While we were talking to somebody, we were really worried that we lost like the first hour of the show. But luckily, we only ended up losing the 10 minutes that it took to get back going. Uh, so so it's, a, it's a little bit later than he expected to join us. So uh, thanks for your time, Yaffe. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So uh, first things first, you know, we're working people in Alabama and, uh, you know, this isn't our jobs. We don't get paid to do this. We're working people in Alabama with a small platform trying to advocate for working people, particularly in Alabama and the South. So the miners strike in Brookwood in our backyard, we probably haven't spent more time on a single other story than that. But no other talk radio host in the state seems to care like at all about these workers um many of whom actually used to be reliable republicans we spoke earlier in the program about braxton uh uh, being on the uh, uh, testifying before the u.s senate budget committee and refusing to shake tommy tupperville's hand because because of Tommy Tuppersville's statements before uh, um, before him and because of his lack of any kind of support uh, for the strikers as we're going on nearly a year on this strike. And Braxton used to vote reliably Republican. This is a reliable Republican voter who refused to shake the junior senator uh, from Alabama's hand after uh, after testifying in D.C. I walked the picket line with people wearing Trump hats at the beginning of the strike, though I think that we're seeing less of that among them now. Why is that? Like, why Like, why do conservatives, Republicans, talk radio host politicians, like, why do they not care? Well, I will say this. Um, in terms of me personally, I, you know how I feel about unions in general, so I tend to be a little more uh, libertarian than the Trumpian populist conservative. Now, I will say I'm actually kind of surprised that they don't get more support from Trump, from the Trump-like Republicans. I really don't have a good answer for that other than that it's just one of those things where they're both trying to negotiate. And, I mean, nothing's really changed. You have one side, both sides kind of stuck their heels in. But I, I wouldn't be surprised. The only thing I can think of is... I know that the union has had strong support from Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So anytime you get that, there's that. Oops, sorry about that. Anytime you get that, there's like a political, there's a political bent to all of this that can create some divisions. So maybe that's it. But I would say the Republican Party under Trump has changed a little bit and it's probably more pro-union than even I am. Well, the um, I mean, the the support from Bernie Sanders and and. Senator Warren uh, came very late 
Uh, and and mm-hmm. and actually, there was a because of the nature of the membership of the union. I mean, I I I know some uh, some details that that I'm not going to get into specifically, but that, let's just say there was a certain amount of resistance to accepting their support. And uh, and and I talked to from the leadership from the leadership of the union. There was a certain amount of resistance, and and we'll leave it at that to accepting support mm-hmm. from Senator Bernie Sanders and. Um, and and I spoke to people, uh, the rank and file, who were similarly resistant at the beginning of the strike, and they were expecting like their churches, their uh, their local politicians, their state reps, their state senators, Donald Trump. They expected these people to come out and support them, and basically, when they didn't <laughs> and 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 bernie sanders and other people on the left quote unquote or other democrats were still there saying i'm still here to support you then they accepted but it was only after like nobody else did yeah i i mean honestly i wish i had a better answer i mean what do you think because well, like i said in terms of me personally i can be a bad gauge for this because i tend to on economics, I tend to be much more libertarian than maybe even Trump is. Why the Trump-like Republicans have not been out supporting them, I really don't know. Well, but <laughs> I, I don't even I really understand. Don't I, well, I'll, I'll tell you my thoughts in, in just a second, but I want to drill down on the libertarian bit because I don't even understand. I don't understand, frankly, why that wouldn't make you a bigger supporter of, of unions because it's not like uh, the government, you know, we're in a right-to-rec state. You can, you can be a member uh, or you can be in a workplace and uh, it is – it is illegal for workers to bargain for a representation fee to be in their contract. The government has come in, which I think is an anti-libertarian thing, but the government has come in and said to workers and to the and to the employer, no, you can't put this clause in your contract that you agree to privately. I think that's anti-libertarian. That's quote unquote right to work laws. Uh, but the I mean, so so these people are members of the union. Uh by their own choice, their own individual choice, they are on strike by their own individual choice. Uh, but the the thing that wasn't their individual choice was the way that this contract was forced on them by these bankruptcy laws, which is exactly what the hearing on the hearing was about today was the bankruptcy laws that allowed these international private equity firms to come in and buy this company that the owners had allowed to go bankrupt. Allow the CEO and the board of directors to stay the same, but allowed them to completely renege on all of their obligations to the community. They were able to, uh, they were not obligated to bring back a single worker. They were not obligated to, they, they, uh, were not obligated to, um, pay for retiree pensions or health care that the company had previously agreed to. All of these obligations were totally gone because of the bankruptcy law that the government, again, has has said that companies can just forego all of these obligations. That's not a libertarian type thing. That's what the hearing was about today. And so to save the company from bankruptcy from uh you know and they accepted huge pay cuts six dollar an hour pay cuts voluntarily again cuts to their uh health care cuts to their pensions all of these things to save the company and then the company is saying we're not even going to keep up with inflation with this contract after you've given us 1.1 billion dollars there was 1.1 billion dollars in savings 
if uh, over the course of this five years that they've had this contract, meaning that if they had just kept up with inflation from the last contract, they would have paid out more uh, $1.1 billion more than um, than they did. So why, like, why as a libertarian, like, why would that preclude you from saying that, yeah, I support the these rural Alabama workers over international private equity firms? Well, I, it's not necessarily that it would preclude me from supporting the workers over private equity firms. And you're talking a lot about bankruptcy law. And I have to admit, I'm not an expert on bankruptcy law. I know it does change things when uh, companies declare bankruptcy or private equity firms come in. Usually from a libertarian perspective, it's more that the companies have a right as well. You know, you're you're talking it to it as the union, the union has a right. And they do have a um, certain rights, as you were you were kind of saying, and they can go on strike and they are going on strike. But I am usually libertarians kind of look at it from a private business standpoint as well and say that private business has a right to do what do what they want, not hire them back, do things. That yeah, maybe but I'm not even talking want. about like their right, quote unquote. I mean, I support the right of like a Nazi to speak. You know, but that doesn't mean that I agree with it. Like, that doesn't mean that I have to be on the sideline. Like, you can say the company has a right to do this or that, and we can, I would probably say that they shouldn't have that right, but we can even stipulate that. And you could still say what these international private equity firms are doing to this Alabama community, stealing $1.1 billion. That is not okay. And we should be putting public pressure on this company, or we should be at least verbally supporting these workers. Gotcha. And then that's an interesting point when you talk about what they have a right versus uh, a responsibility. And there are definitely big companies that I believe have rights to do things that I disagree with. Big tech is the one we could talk about as well. Um, I, I think a lot of it here, um, when you talk about why Republicans don't support it, maybe there is some confusion in some of the bankruptcy laws and how a lot of this works and not as people are as informed as you are on some of that kind of stuff. I think a lot of it, though, really is there's just some conservatives that are still very wary of unions. And when you have a union trying to do something like this together as a union, it just kind of makes them back up a little bit. But I, I think there's also something you could be say, which are right, where a lot of especially Trumpian Republicans, they're not going to be happy with these private equity firms and what they're doing. I think that's where a lot of the Trump support came from. And like I said, I'm a little bit surprised that they have not gotten more support from like a Trump thing. And there might be, and, not, and that's what I was curious what you were thinking as well. What do you think the reason is? Well, so here's what I think that the difference between this and so many other conservative culture war stories, quote unquote, is that the stakes are real. I mean, I, I think that the stakes are real and there will be material benefits for working people and it will cost bosses. And I, I think that's the difference. And because the story has international private equity firms, uh, coastal elites, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, which owns the majority stake in Warrior Met, he's a big Democratic donor. He's going around talking about climate change and, and, and whatever the hell. I mean, you know, so, so we've got that angle. We can, I, I don't care how you do it, frankly. You know, you can, you, you can come at it from that angle. You've got the, uh, free speech angle where unlike so many of these, free speech stories where we're talking about 
private companies that are deciding to platform or not platform this person or individual actors uh, deciding that they do or don't want to be associated with this person. Unlike in those cases, we've actually got the government, the state of Alabama, saying to these workers that you cannot picket that you cannot uh, uh, that you, that no more than right now two people no more than two people can be on the picket line in Brookwood at one time almost immediately after the strike began they limited it to 10 and then to like 11 and then to six then they banned it outright for like two or three months picketing was banned in Brookwood uh, and now they're allowing them to so you've got like actual legitimate in my view and in the view of the union First Amendment violations by the state of Alabama and you know uh, uh and you've got a, a cultural sensitivity here because you've got coal miners. And like I said, you had a reliable Republican voter refuse to shake a Republican uh, U.S. senator's hand. You know, I mean, th- this. Mm-hmm. So you've got the cultural angle. And I think that, the, you know, I remember you tweeting uh, a couple of weeks ago or something that it was a quote unquote serious problem that Minnie Mouse is for one month at one Disney location halfway across the world in Fla- in France wearing a pantsuit. I think that the difference here between between Minnie Mouse wearing a pantsuit at one location for one month halfway across the world and coal miners in Alabama is is that the stakes are real. Is that that there's actually going to be a material difference in people's lives, and I think that that you know. Conserv- the, the conservative ideology is one that is uh, uh, of by and for corporate power. That's an interesting point. I'm hearing music in the background, so I, I don't know if it's coming on your end or <laughs> that's from my end. But um, uh, yeah, I, I think that is a when I when I talked about the Minnie Mouse thing, it was one of those things where I was like, that's more of like I, I only think it's a serious thing in terms of. That specific thing, maybe it's not serious in and of itself, but overall, in terms of all these things in the culture, I do think drip, 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 eventually in a big time thing that can affect the culture. And when you're talking about this situation, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe there are real stakes. And and like I said, in terms of not getting Republican support, I really think it's frankly, there's just a lot of conservatives and a lot of um, Republicans that are just skeptical of unions. And when unions talk about something against private companies, that that makes them put their guard up. And that is changing, though. You know, I tend to be kind of an outlier on some of that stuff. Because of Trump, the Republican Party is transforming. And maybe maybe you'll see a change here. Hey, I, I wanted to jump in on that point right there because, you know, I, I've also heard that uh, coming from Republican circles the last few years. And we heard it from, you know, liberal circles as well that that Trump was appealing to the working class, even though the demographics of his supporters are about the same as Mitt Romney and John McCain's. Honestly, Uh, it's your standard Republican base. But, you know, there's there's certainly been some uh, excitement that certain segments of the working class had with Trump and the whole Trump phenomenon. And we've seen Marco Rubio and other Republicans talk about being pro-worker are being a a working, you know, more or less trying to shape the image of the Republican Party to be more friendly to working class folks. I would say unsaid there is a certain type of working class folk, uh, primarily white ones. Uh, But that aside, there has been this rhetoric of 
Republicans posturing towards working class people and working class issues. But the evidence remains to be seen. And I think this is just, you know, one of many examples. But this is a very clear example where here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity to say, hey, yeah, we're pro worker. In fact, these are coal miners, which, you know, I've seen plenty of Republicans talk about coal miners on the campaign trail. We've seen coal miners being used in political ads. You know, and it, I, I agree with you, Jacob. I, it, to me, it seems as if it's one thing to support folks in the abstract to say, well, we, yeah, we support coal miner jobs because we're against climate regulations. Uh, but when you actually have people on the ground where it is real, well, no, that's when it's time to, to back away or pretend that, you know, you're not you're not involved there. You shouldn't have a perspective there. And. What you're speaking to, I think, is how politics, as we understand it, as you know, if you just say politics to folks, what tends to be brought up is the spectacle of arguing back and forth, mostly about cultural type issues, about whether or not Minnie Mouse should wear pants. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's it's very much media driven. It's all about getting clicks and getting attention. Uh, and it's pretty divorced from real world issues and i think part of that's because we've sort of uh all taken the assumption that real world issues can't be addressed by politics anymore um you know i maybe that's maybe that's just me but that's sort of the vibe i get from it but i but i agree i think at the end of the day when you have a contradiction that's exposed there between the rhetoric and the actions uh and it's easy to to talk about supporting workers in the abstract but when workers are on the picket line they're they need support uh when workers are seeing their wages cut when they're seeing their benefits cut uh those are i mean those you can't get any more real than that that's mm-hmm. that's how you eat that's how you feed your family that's how you retire in dignity uh so all that to say for all the talk about working class posturing uh coming from republican circles or or and i hate the way populism i think is kind of overused but i don't i don't see it i just i i don't see it beyond um culture and, and appealing to you know cultural conservatism which yes does have it you know segments of support among the working class just like it does all classes um so, yeah, I just I don't see it. I, I really don't see it. If there's a point in time where Republicans can come out and say, here's how we are supporting working class people, people who have to sell their labor in exchange for wages uh, and who cannot live off stocks and cannot live off rents and profits. I'd love to see it. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I haven't seen it in my lifetime. So um, my, my only response to that is a lot of it just has to do with approaches. You know, for one, you were talking about the abstract. Well, there were issues that even Republicans here in Alabama were disagreeing with Republicans in the late legislature that was beyond abstract and was very real and had to do with vaccine mandates. And I think Trump got a lot of support from some working class. And the reason why it said that is because in the 2016 election, he was able to kind of break through that blue wall. Now, a lot of it had to do with Hillary Clinton being a bad candidate, I think. A lot of that also, I think, had to do with what you said, culture issues 
while it seems abstract, seems media driven, I think it actually a lot of workers do care about that because we live in the culture and how things work in the culture. Now, when you're talking about economic issues, I think it's like just different approaches. You know, your approach is more union based, collective, collective bargaining based, supporting the worker in that regard, where Trump's approach was more trade policy. Or, or something like that, where you have fair trade and going after things like that. So it's, it's sort of, I mean, we can kind of believe in the worst intentions of each side. And I totally understand that. I mean, that's, po- unfortunately, that can be politics. But a lot of it, it really is just a different approach of how we deal with things. You know, my approach is what's best for the worker is an overall thriving economy where if one company treats them bad, they have an ability to go to another company and get a job and people are competing for jobs and competing and companies are competing for labor. And the best way to do that is through a very free market economic system. So in, you might disagree with that and that's fine. That's where politics gets disruptive. But in terms of supporting the worker, I believe that supports the worker where you believe your approach supports workers in a different way. And that's, I think, where a lot of the disagreement is. And in terms of like climate change policy, like you said, that's another thing where I think it does affect the worker and the worker sees it in their job and see what's going on in the future and jobs being lost. And that's why they might go Republican. But overall, I do understand what you're saying, that it does kind of surprise me that maybe more Republicans don't support something like this and Overall, I'm not necessarily sure other than maybe they just don't support the approach because they're wary of unions in general, because unions traditionally in the past um, 20, 30 years have been pretty pro-Democrat. I mean, not the UMWA, not the UMWA. The only I mean, they, they didn't even they didn't even endorse Joe Biden in the last election. I mean, this is not like even a lot of the building trades unions are uh, they will endorse the Democratic candidate for president, but the UMWA hasn't. They have like been for a long time silent on the national stage as far as endorsements. Um, they endorse Joe Manchin every year, but that's like you know that's basically it. And mm-hmm. and and so it's it's very it, it's it's very frustrating to me because um, I don't. D- did you watch the hearing today? I no, I did not. I, I was looking up news reports on it. I did see. Uh, Tuberville. And uh, I did see some of what Tuberville said in the hearing and Tuberville was making the point that I was kind of going back to earlier that he seems more skeptical because Warren and Sanders are involved and feels like they're tipping the scales towards the union. And it kind of goes back to his approach with unions. And he doesn't just see he just doesn't seem like a senator who is going to be in a rush to support a union on anything. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, mean, and that's I mean, the that's extremely frustrating to me because i am not i i i'm not somebody that um i only support people that are ideologically aligned with me i support working people making their lives better uh and like i said i marched i I was on the picket line at the beginning of the strike with people in trump hats right like i'm not (laughs) not a republican i'm not a conservative but right uh this guy i believe uh I, be, I I see him as my brother, and I believe that he sees me as his brother. And listening to Braxton, another guy that I have I've had a lot of conversations with, 
testify about the way that this company has affected his life, you know, before the before the bankruptcy contract in 2016, he didn't have to work six to 10 day weeks. He didn't have to work 10 to 12 hour days. He was able to spend time with his family and many people, their partners did not have to work. Their partners were able to stay at home while they went to work and they were both able to spend time with their families. And he talked about how, uh, most of the people's spouses have since the contract. I mean, we're talking about a $6 an hour pay cut. That's like a mortgage payment, $6 an hour. Um, and and he was talking about how a lot of the people, their spouses had to take jobs. And when you're talking about working six to, 10, uh, six to seven day weeks, 10 to 12 hours a day, you're talking about just basically sponsoring your family. You're going, you're getting up, you're going to work, you're coming home and you're going to sleep so that your family can live. And, he talked about how his it would break your heart how many times his kid would ask how um why wasn't he at her ball game and he would say i had to work or i had to sleep and before that tommy tuberville had the gall to talk about how these people their average wage is $97,000 a year he had the gall to say that Knowing that these people, to get $97,000 a year, they were working six to seven day weeks. They were working 10 to 12 hours a day. And he said that less than 24 hours after he told the media that he opposed a stock trading ban because he felt like that would disincentivize people from coming to work in D.C. He doesn't think, for special important people like him, that $200,000 a year in taxpayer money is enough. But he thinks for coal miners in Brookwood, Alabama, $97,000 is maybe even too much. I mean, that like, how does that not like piss you the hell off? Well, I mean, I mean, I'm going to say the heartless conservative thing now. If the guy doesn't like a job, can he find another job? Of course not. That's the best job in the area. That's the only, you know, otherwise you're looking at like working at a grocery store or something. But the only reason that the company is able to do that is because they are owned by trillion dollar uh, uh, international private equity firms. So what what would be your solution here? And then what exactly did you want Tuberville other than showing like, a, you know, like a support of outspoken support specifically government policy what government policy would you like to change here so i think that of course you know i i think it's very frustrating to me when i hear people talk about how i don't want to weigh in on these private negotiations because that's between the workers and the company because we know that that's bs that conservatives and politicians democrats and republicans comment on the private functions of corporations all the time all the time mm-hmm. okay. all the time we know that that's bogus frankly and that's the, like the nice way to say it so i think at the very least we can we should we should be able to expect from people who are illegitimately exploiting our communities that our, <laughs> our representatives will at least say that's bad that's like really bad <laughs> that these coastal elites are able to rip 1.1 billion dollars from one small community i think that that's like the bare minimum but as far as government policy we were ta- uh, the the whole hearing was basically centered around bankruptcy law and how it's broken because this company was able to totally sever all of their obligations to the um 
to the workers and to the community through bankruptcy. And I don't think they should have been able to do that. I don't think that they should have been able to totally to to get rid of their entire workforce. They were all basic. They were all let go. And then it was on the company whether or not they could hire them back. They, despite the fact that the company and the workers had both ratified a contract, a contract saying, I'm going to hire you and it's going to be under these conditions and you can expect this pay and these conditions and, and this health ben- these health benefits, these retirements. All of that was totally gone. And, uh, and the same CEO was able to come back and the same board of directors was able to come back. They got raises. I think that bankruptcy law should not allow, uh, people to totally get rid of all of their obligations to their employers. I think that that's one thing that we can do. Yeah, and there might be some reforms that are needed in bankruptcy law. I can't, I can't really argue with that. In terms of this specific case, um, you talk about it. I mean, the purpose of bankruptcy law is because um, they try to get out of those some of those contracts and some of those liabilities. It's the whole point. But you had made the point that they got out of it, but then they went back and hired the same board of directors and all that stuff and paid them and not the workers. Mm-hmm. On the surface. Yeah, you're right. That doesn't seem fair. Maybe there are some reforms there. I have to admit, I would have to do a little bit more research on the specifics of bankruptcy law before I can take a firm stance on that one. I will have to admit that. But I totally get your point there. Jacob, I just wanted to weigh in real quick on that, because I think ultimately it just boils down to whose side are you on? And in this case, uh, I think it would be it seems to me that at least with with folks like Senator Tuberville all the way down to, you know, Alabama legislators and, and local politicians there, that they would be more concerned of alienating lawyer Met Cole and the venture capitalists behind them, uh, who are, of course, very wealthy and powerful and influential. They're more concerned about keeping those folks on their side as opposed to the, what, 2000 or so. Uh, miners, uh, yeah, eleven hundred uh, miners on strike and their families, and it's really a shame because, as you pointed out, that's money that was in this community uh, right. that has been slowly drained out. That's money that could be in that community and could be, you know, circulated in that economy. That would be economic growth. Yeah, if, I mean, if these folks had those wages, they would be spending it locally. That would create more jobs and and, and so forth. So. I mean, one point one billion dollars in Brookwood over five years. Like that's that's, that's a ton. And, and instead of that one point one billion dollars um, providing economic growth in Brookwood, it's sitting in a bank in New York. Like that's not a good source of that's not a good use of resources. And and I don't think that that's that's the fair allocation of like. Who does the work, you know, because these people were able to swoop in from New York, like Cecil said in the Cecil, the international president of the UMWA, he said in the hearing, these people don't know what color the coal is, <laughs> you know, and and they're able to, you know, they didn't find the mine. They didn't mine the coal. Uh, they don't transport the coal, but somehow they own the mine and they're able to take all this money out of Brookwood. I just I, I can't. um it's it's incredibly frustrating, and the only reason that they're able to do that is because they own these trillions of dollars. Like the playing the 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 the, the playing field is is simply not fair. It's totally stacked in favor of of the company. And I think to me. Uh, Senator Tuberville's comments are designed to obscure exactly what you just said. I I think a hundred percent that is what he was testifying to today 
was to obscure just those basic facts about what's really happening. Uh, so let's go ahead and, and I, I don't know that there's there's anything else to talk about there. I would be interested in, in you know, when you've done when you've done a, a little bit more reading about the longest strike in Alabama history, I, I'd be interested in, in knowing more about your um, your thoughts about it and the bankruptcy laws and everything like that. But in Montgomery right now, there are a couple of bills that it seems to me have Dis, like the rhetoric around them is dissonant and i'm talking about the constitutional carry and the quote-unquote anti-riot legislation you support the constitutional carry bill right i'm assuming yes correct why do you support that well i, I tend to believe that you have a, a right to carry a gun and you don't necessarily need permission from the government to be able to do that and you don't necessarily mm-hmm. need to buy a permit to be able to do that you know it's kind of it is your right as an individual citizen to do that and to have to pay the government for a permit to do that just doesn't seem right to me, especially uh, with the Second Amendment. Yeah, and I don't you know, we're not opposed to that necessarily. Um, I think uh, I'm I'm not a gun owner. I know Adam is. I know uh, yeah. David and, is. And I have my permit. Um, and, uh, you know, something Senator Gavan mentioned, which is really the whole, whole reason I have it is so that. If I have my firearms in my vehicle and I'm pulled over, uh, I'm, you know, in compliance. I'm yeah. not someone yeah. who, uh, you know, the people who concealed carry everywhere, you know, the more power to them. Uh, but, you know, I don't necessarily always feel like I have to go packing every t- everywhere I go. <laughs> uh, yeah. Maybe I should. Uh, I don't know. And, and I don't either. And I, and I yeah. was going to say that. The law does not prevent you from getting a permit, even even this law. You could still get a permit. Right. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I, I'm I'm not opposed to the, the legislation because I, I think ultimately these permits are primarily just a revenue generator for sheriff's departments. Yeah, I and, agree. <laughs> uh, you know, I think whatever legitimate uh, revenue needs they may need uh, should not come from from that, uh, nor should it come from asset forfeiture and fleecing their citizens as they pull them over in a discriminatory manner. So that's a whole nother subject. Um, so, yeah, well, Brookside I, was a great example of that. too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think and the timing on that is it's pretty interesting. I mean, I think that can't help the law enforcement community is they're out here beating the bushes to try to kill this bill. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you're, you're getting massive exposés about the way they, yeah, they fleece their citizenry and just people ha- who happen to be driving through. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, had and the bad, bad misfortune of, of ending up in a community where the cops are, are there to generate revenue off people. Yeah. And, you know, and, it was, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's amazing that, um, I, you know, the vice chairman of the committee that was going through this bill, he had said that supporting constitutional carry <laughs> is defunding the police. Yeah, I and that. I was like a Republican. <laughs> like it was just like the sheriff of the former sheriff of Brookside would have loved to use that line. <laughs> I mean, the idea that they should be getting their funding in the first place from ticketing and finding their citizens that much. I right. mean, no, you're not going to, you know, I, that's, I'm not on board with that at all. Yeah. And- yeah. That's, that's all. Hey, there we go. There, right. there's a point of consensus. And I think honestly it would be a broad consensus across Alabama, across, yeah. uh, you know, various lines of politics and demographics. I mean, nobody uh, likes to be harassed by law right. enforcement. 
another one of the things that law enforcement is saying about like as they oppose this bill is that it might make them less safe um and it might uh it might make it harder for them to solve crimes and and somebody was saying something along those lines on twitter and you said like uh take take away my freedom so i can feel safe is not like a very compelling uh uh argument and and so the you know the the counter argument that you're making to these concerns about officer safety or even civilian safety is that like, you know, uh, we live in a free society and that's There's going to be some, some amount of risk there. And, and the risk right. that comes with any, with any citizen being able to carry a gun basically anywhere is worth it because it's important to have that freedom. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the arguments. I mean, it's kind of like you said, the Bill of Rights gets in the way sometimes of police being able to do their job as easy as they would want to. But it's there for a reason to keep individual freedoms. Now, I don't necessarily buy into the argument as well that having more guns around is going to make it that much less safe. In some cases, it's going to make it more safe, in my opinion. But even putting that aside, I think we have to the government's role is to protect our rights and. So that should be first priority in everything. And I believe carrying a gun is your right. Yeah. And so the the dissonance, it seems to me, is that we've got this we've got this rhetoric around like consequences be damned like it's my right to carry a gun into Walmart. You know? <laughs> yeah. And and on the other side of that, you've got the same people pushing this quote-unquote anti-riot legislation. Um, and what are your thoughts on that piece of legislation? I mean, I read the bill. I, I really didn't have a problem with it. You know, I had seen the riots and, um, you know, we all saw the riots that were happening and they were dangerous and there was a lot of property damage and so on and so well, forth. Let me Obviously, just stop right there I'm, and say, I, I don't think we all saw the same things because... <laughs> Only property it, damage in Huntsville was caused by the cops. <laughs> yeah, what what has been portrayed in the media, particularly conservative media, would have you think that, like, Minneapolis and Portland and even Birmingham were, you know, look like Kabul. And, you know, that's just completely ridiculous but i mean there was there was violence there, there was, was some violence, violence and much if not most of that was at the hands of the police unfortunately um and many people uh, that, and and, that. and many people <laughs> that that perpetrated that except for the police that perpetrated it many of the civilians that perpetrated that violence and that property destruction were arrested oh yeah yeah and, yeah. and i and, and and i totally understand that and i know part of the riot bill is to hold them for longer because they feel like um you know it's 24 hours but it's so they can't just bail out and go back and do what they were doing it gives it gives some time to clean things up i mean well, right uh, you so- know, i've seen areas where some of the riots were and it, it was pretty devastating and even though the majority of people like you said were peaceful protesters you still had a pretty large segment in some of these inner cities that were pretty violent well, so the I can imagine a world where we've got a constitutional speech bill that mirrors this constitutional carry bill that says I shouldn't have to get a permit to speak in my park. In fact, the government ought not have any authority to tell me when and where and how and for how long and how loudly I should speak. The government shouldn't have the authority to issue injunctions against picketing workers who are striking um, because 
our First Amendment rights are that important. And in fact, it's illegitimate that permits ha- and and these injunctions have taken place at all that's all illegitimate and unconstitutional but we want to fix that and have a constitutional speech bill and get rid of all of this stuff and 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 say that it's your right to speak and 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 that's that and of course just like with this constitutional carry bill you can't shoot somebody <laughs> you know it's still illegal to kill someone it's still illegal to shoot someone and with a constitutional speech bill, it would be still illegal to hurt somebody or damage property in a riot. Why, instead of seeing something like that, why is it that we're seeing a a while we're seeing a, an a, an effort to increase freedoms and liberties with respect to gun ownership, we're seeing an effort to decrease liberties with respect to speech and assembly. Well, I will say this in terms of speech, I am definitely more of a free speech purist than maybe even some on my side. Now, that being said, one, there is a difference between public and private property. So we have to make sure those things are different. If if it's private property, they have a right to control some of what's going on in their property. Now, public property, I, you know, I get what you're saying to a certain extent. But obviously, if you're having a group of people do something in a certain public area that is interfering with what that public area is meant to be or meant to do, then I think you you do have a problem where you where you have to limit things, so on and so forth. Now, an example of that is technically a road is public property, but I don't think we should just have protests in a road that are brought blocking traffic because obviously the road is meant for travel. And in a but park, you when, know, if didn't I'm I hear you on the radio I... like today supporting the Canadian truckers, even though you don't generally like talking about <laughs> workers? So actually, I had mentioned that I sub- I didn't support a lot of their tactics. And I had actually said okay. on my show that I don't like the tactics of supporting of blocking traffic and stuff. Now, some truckers, it wasn't blocking traffic, but the ones that were blocking traffic. Yeah, I was not a big fan of those tactics. But I also think overall, um, my point on that was, what did the government expect? Did they really expect 100% compliance on this? And I think the vaccine mandate in and of itself of Canada is completely unnecessary, and they're just asking for trouble. But in terms of the tactics of some of the truckers and blocking roads and traffic, no, I am completely against that. And I had mentioned, too, that you know it's just like BLM. BLM had done some of that in the past, and some other groups had, and I was against it then. So to be consistent. Yeah. But I do think there is something when you're talking about assembly, like if I'm with my friends in a park and I say something that might be offensive, I don't think the government should come arrest me. But you're talking about a group of people that are getting in the way of the use of the park being a park. Then, yeah, I think we do need some laws to kind of control that a little bit. So the anti-riot bill, one of the things that you actually mentioned was the 24 hour mandatory holding period when uh treadaway was told that this would keep innocent people in jail for 24 hours um and they would lose their job and in fact this actually happened um i was talking to somebody just a few weeks ago who had friends who who was arrested in in Mm -hmm. huntsville um of course basically everybody who was arrested in huntsville had their charges dropped because they were bogus um they lost their jobs even without this mandatory holding period. Um, they were not able to make a shift, and so they lost their job. A 24-hour mandatory holding period is going to hold innocent people in prison uh, 
for 24 hours, they're going to lose their jobs uh, and and have and then by virtue of that, potentially lose their housing and all these sorts of things. And be and, at significant <clears throat> safety risk because the jails right, uh, right. across the state of Alabama can be quite dangerous. And, and unfortunately, we see this all the time. We saw it just in the past month in Huntsville where there have been multiple deaths. In the in these jails, not yeah. prison, but but jails where folks would be held for twenty four hours, and and in the public hearing, he said that's when confronted with this information, he said that's one of the reasons that I put this mandatory holding time in the bill. All those people got got their charges dropped. Like, and you mentioned that as a particular thing that you supported. Like, why is that? How is that? As somebody who said well, they were a free speech purist. Well, I, I was saying that. Um, in terms of being in 24 holding period, I think the reasoning behind it was so that they can't go back out. And so they get arrested, they're in a riot, they get arrested and they just get bonded out and they go back to the riot. And obviously there needs to be time to be able to clean up that area. Now I will say this. I do. I could see Republicans compromising on this. I, if there was a compromise to be made, I, I could totally see Republicans compromising on that one part of it. But even if they compromise on that, I don't think the Democrats are still going to be on board with it. Oh, no. I mean, of course not, because it's it's you can be arrested for rioting, quote unquote. You can be convicted. You can have a felony on your record. You can spend 30 days in jail without ever having hurt a hair on anyone's head or damaged a lick of property. And this is coming from small government. Well, you're talking about inciting yeah. a riot. Then. You're talking about no. I'm talking about participating in a riot. The definition of riot in this bill does not necessitate you hurting a single person or damaging a lick of property. All it necessitates well, it's the is to damage. No, it the all, 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 all it necessitates is that the police perceive you have uh, uh, that you are creating that sort of potential danger. Well, I mean, the interpretation here is, is yeah, police would perceive you have that interpretation. It doesn't say police perceiving it in the law. It just says you have that intent. And it seems like, um, and you know, this kind of goes from your worldview. I think it seems like you just kind of believe that the cops are going to use this and abuse this. And of I, and I totally get they that. Will. Like, what are <laughs> I mean, there's 500 years of American history yeah. that, it's pretty clear that that's that's exactly what yeah. has happened what and mean? will happen. And under this bill, uh, you know, it's but there's very... lots of laws that we need that police could abuse anyway. So, sure. uh, so I'm saying like we need laws. So to we be should probably get rid of some on of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, my my issue is that everything that people are talking about. We ju- we spoke earlier to Senator Sam Gavan about this bill, and he was like, oh, I don't know. There's he he frankly he gave a lot of politician answers. When I asked him these questions, he was like, oh, well, you know, I don't know, maybe this or maybe that. Um, but when I asked him about uh, about this, this bill, he said, um, well, you know, I support people's right to speak, but people shouldn't be burning down buildings. And it's like, that's illegal. Like, <laughs> like, like you will be arrested if you burn down a building <laughs> in Alabama. And I do not understand like there were people most of people had their charges dropped because they were bogus but there were people that were arrested and were convicted in alabama of property damage and like i there's not a problem it seems like i i can't fathom imagining that there's a problem with people being too liberal with their speech rights 
Yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. It's just the, the goal is to be preventative. And there's got to be ways to be preventative so we don't get to the point where they're already rioting. Well, if you allow people to, if you, I mean, just like you were talking about earlier with respect to the constitutional carry, if you allow cops to violate the Fourth Amendment, you're going to prevent a lot of crimes. True, true. So if you allow people to violate the First Amendment, you're going to prevent some property damage. But I think as an American, as somebody who values the First Amendment right to freedom of speech, that there maybe there are some consequences, maybe there's a CVS that gets broken into because uh, people were allowed to protest for too long. But, like, I think that's the consequence of living in a society that values free speech. And the people who, who do that are still be committed arrested. crime. And, that, and that's what I share with my legislator is, is this is a classic example. And this happens in the Alabama legislature every session where you have legislation that is supposed to be a solution that's worse than the problem it claims to be addressing because we don't have a a problem with you know massive riots in this state uh we just don't uh but you know in terms of being preventative i think you're actually really on to something here because it's it's meant to discourage right mass mobilizations it's meant to discourage protest movements social movements um you know you could hear the same kind of rhetoric coming from Bull Connor and, and and his crew 60 years ago, um, because ultimately I think it is to instill fear hmm. and to penalize people who speak up, and it absolutely will be used in a discretionary manner. And you know what? And and maybe in majority Democratic areas, uh, pro-Trump or, or conservative protest may may be unfairly targeted as well. And I would mm-hmm. be against that. Yeah. Um, but I, I think common sense and, and plenty of historical evidence is clear that it's going to be targeted at certain groups of folks. It's going to be targeted towards minorities. It's going to be targeted towards, you know, the quote unquote radical left, which according to some Republicans is anybody to the left of Nixon. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I think it's, again, it, it's, it's meant to penalize and discourage people from exercising their rights uh, to free assembly and free speech, to protest, to demonstrate, which is how almost all change in this country has come anyway, has come from social movements uh, who were in the streets. Uh, and I, I think it's pretty, you know, Alabama Rise put out, um, you know, when they were sounding the alarms for this bill they mentioned in their their update to our to the members how this could have been used against Dr. King mm-hmm. and Reverend Shuttlesworth and and the civil rights movement. Um, and I think I think it's just yeah, it's it's a lot of echoing of that. Um, you know, these non-existent threats that require big government force, mm-hmm. and that's what this is. I mean, when police officers who are armed agents of the state have the authority to detain you for 24 hours in dangerous conditions because they thought you might be up to something. Mm-hmm. I don't feel very free. Yeah. I don't feel like I have, you know, a lot of freedom to exercise my free speech and free assembly in a so-called free country. It's just very disturbing, and and I think it's a dangerous trend that we're seeing across the country of criminalizing protest and criminalizing dissent uh, which is a reflection, I think, uh, of the legitimate fears that some folks have when they do see large, diverse crowds of people standing up for social justice. 
I think it scares them. I think it uh, scares them for the future. It scares them that, hey, maybe they're in the minority now. Maybe maybe the people are are changing. And uh, I think they're they're using the force of the state to discourage that. Well, I think you're kind of assuming the worst intentions of people. And the basically where I disagree is there were some pretty bad riots and violence in 2020 in the summer of 2020. And I don't feel very free if I'm in a city where there's that kind of violence going on either. And there has to be a way to stop it. And it's not just, oh, I'm afraid of diversity or minorities. It's that kind of violence is dangerous and chaotic for the future of the country. And looking at a bill and the reading of this bill, I am not one that thinks the police in Huntsville or anywhere else are going to be a use it, abuse it. And I don't think it's anywhere similar to the civil rights, peaceful civil rights movement of Martin Luther King. I think it's very extreme to compare one to the other. But I mean, that, it just goes to a different worldview and a different view we had of what happened on that summer, I think. Well, I mean, of course, that <clears throat> we conceded that there was there was property damage and, and you conceded that, that people were arrested. And we are both aware that there are not riots uh, by BLM right now. Like it was it was one point in history and that and and now it's over. It's not like this is it's not like this is some long ongoing thing. And. <clears throat> And I think that a bill that allows to that allows for the holding of of people of innocent people for twenty four hours um, in dangerous conditions is not good. I think that a bill that allows you to be arrested for quote unquote rioting um, and have a felony on your record and spend thirty days in prison um, without ever having damaged property or hurt anybody, I think that's a bad bill. You can also be charged with a crime for funding a riot. We know that that's aimed at the bail funds. I think that I have a right to bail my uh, fellow citizens out of jail, especially if I think that it's illegitimate that they've been in jail. What do you think about that? Yeah, I actually agree with you on that part. I mean, in terms of where you put your money, um, unless you're funding some kind of direct terrorist group, I, I don't think the government should be telling you where that money goes. And we, and we saw that in Canada, and I was against it there, too. I mean, they, yeah. they were using emergency actions. Yeah, to we're going to be talking about the, Yeah, we're going to yeah. be talking about that here in a bit. That is extremely scary, what they're doing to those truckers in Canada. Yeah. Um, the the last thing that I and and we'll wrap it up. You've been generous with your time. Spent an hour with us into the evening on Thursday. I appreciate it. The stock trading ban in D.C. Um, we mentioned it earlier. Tommy Tupperville doesn't think that two hundred thousand dollars of taxpayer money is enough to incentivize him to serve the people of Alabama. Uh, what do you think about that? So I was looking into this a little bit. This is one of those issues where. Once again, I think the majority of people would probably support a ban on stock trading. I think in the big scheme of things, it really doesn't matter. I don't think most of the corruption happens from stock trading, and it's already illegal to uh, trade stocks based on knowledge that's not public. I mean, that's already in the law. So in terms of this is just going a stepping further and saying, well, you can't trade stocks at all, well... You know, there's a lot of people that run for Congress that are business owners, and then they run for Congress, and they have to get rid of all their stocks and stock options. And I just don't think it's one of those things in the big picture that's really going to like stop some kind of mass corruption. I don't think that's the source of corruption in Congress. Now, there could be some reforms in terms of transparency on these things, 
I could totally support that. But just banning them from trading stocks in general, it's one of those things on the surface I think sounds good, but I don't know if it really does any good, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that I don't know. I, I agree with you that I don't think that it would end corruption in Washington, but I think that so it, there there is an interesting um, there there is an interesting tradition that some Native Americans had um, in Central America uh, for when they elected their leaders. There was like a ritual torture that they had to go through where all the citizenry like basically beat the crap out of them after they were elected to represent them in in their equivalent of a government. And um, I think that we could do with some of that. (laughs) And so basically, (laughs) basically I see this, if nothing else, as a sort of like, you have to make this sacrifice to um, to, to serve your citizens. And, you know, you're welcome that we're not pelting you with stones, you know, basically. Uh, and uh-huh. and it, it doesn't it doesn't prohibit them from putting it into a blind trust or from having mutual funds. It's just like that you can't you can't trade stocks at all. And, you know, you mentioned that, that it was already illegal to use insider information, but no congressperson has ever been um, convicted of insider training trading and we know of course that they do it because in 2021 almost every single congressperson who traded stocks beat the market and that's extremely hard to do and there are already laws around transparency that uh senator tommy tuberville is actually one of the worst it, it, it he was the worst violator of in 2021 there were 132 uh stock transactions that he made that he didn't report until weeks or months after the reporting deadline so there are already like you uh, uh there are already transparency guidelines that People just don't follow. (laughs) Well, I mean, look at the very early stages of the pandemic and how many of the politicians on on both sides of the aisle there, how many of those politicians pumped money into Pfizer and Big Pharma while dumping their stocks in, uh, you know, the entertainment industry and other industries that that obviously were going to be hard hit by a pandemic. I think that was is just so egregious to see so many of those senators and representatives. You know, on the surface, I can understand that. But, I mean, I think a regular person could have done the same thing. <laughs> Knowing the pandemic's coming, you might say, oh, I'm going to invest in big pharma and get out of the entertainment business and without right yeah well i mean i don't i don't know i mean i think at the time it was this was even before the lockdowns right yeah it's it's more of uh getting the The, the early jump on it this was this was around the time when people were comparing the coronavirus uh uh not illegitimately to the flu thinking that it wasn't going to be a big deal or i remember people talking about around the time that these trades were made, talking about how, oh, we were really worried about Ebola, but look how that turned out. Well, it sounds like the issue here then is really enforcement of the the continuing laws. You talk about people not following transparency or they're, they're trading, they're obviously doing it from insider information. Maybe it's really more of an enforcement issue. And, you know, I don't know how you fix that because they're the enforcers as well. So I guess you would say maybe then they couldn't trade in general, I, I'm just afraid. I'm just, it's just one of those things where I, I'm afraid there's going to be unintended complications by going this far. And like, I actually I'm not think going that far people. is like the simplest thing you can do. Like, 
complications. I think it's like the least complicated thing you can do. Like you just can't trade stocks and you're welcome for the $200,000 a year and that we don't beat the tar out of you. Yeah, I will say they do make plenty of money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some of them complaining they don't make enough money. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. Like, but, but um, you know, it's just, you know, I was, I was reading a couple things on it and there were a couple issues that I thought maybe could come up. But it's in terms of the big picture, I guarantee you there's broad support for this. So mm-hmm. politically, I think Republicans would be smart to jump on board. But it, this is sort of that side of me where it's like, you know, I don't really, you know, if they have the ability to trade stocks and make money, more power to them. And as long as they're not doing anything illegal or insider training, I I just don't have a big problem with it. Well, that was a bummer. I thought we were going to be able to uh, end on some agreement. And I'm assuming then you you wouldn't support a uh, bill to introduce ritual beatings of our politicians? (laughs) <laughs> oh no I, I totally support that okay. that's all right let's do that right now <laughs> all right thanks yaffe i appreciate your time yeah thanks for joining all right us. thank you all right no problem uh yeah that was michael yaffe you can hear him in the mornings on wvnn where we are on the radio one of the we're in the radio in multiple states i think we should start talking about um, our nationally syndicated radio program. Maybe that's how we should start talking about the show. <laughs> uh, we're certainly regionally. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, we're in Louisiana. Louisiana and Alabama, that's two states. You could say that's that's yeah. national in a sense. Um, so did you have any other thoughts, Adam, on the conversation with Yaffe? No, I, I, I do appreciate his yeah. time and willing to you know be a good sport. Um, yeah, we... we you know, as he said, we had, we're coming from drastically different worldviews, and I, I would argue probably some different uh, backgrounds in terms of our historical knowledge on some of these things. Um, well, you are a history teacher, so that well, I mean, fair. you know, to <laughs> you know, he, he said, "I'm assuming the worst." Well, that's right. I'm, we're that's, assuming the worst because that's what happens, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, because that's what happens, and also that's imagine being a libertarian and having a. Uh, instinctual trust of the police <laughs> like oh yeah my default position as somebody who hates the government is to trust the people who enforce the laws right. that's <laughs> when you say don't tread on me who do you think does the treading right. um but yeah i, I mean oh, it, it, in terms of assuming worst intentions i mean that's yeah part of what it what it boils down to when you're looking at government and what rights do they have and should they not have uh yeah, you have to assume that any right the right. government has can and will be abused. That's part of the whole like conversation around what they can and can't do and what are your rights constitutionally. Yeah. So uh, It really did it really did honestly surprise me that he did not um that he still supported the anti-riot legislation and that he was so hesitant to support the stock trading ban. Like that was, um, I don't know, that did kind of surprise me a bit. Yeah, and and the stock trading ban, I think, is mostly just interesting because of who our senator is in Tyberville. Yeah, I mean, it's like I'm inclined to agree with both of you guys that in the grand scheme of things, it probably won't make a drastic difference on corruption. Um, you know, it's obviously not something any of us ever have to worry about because right. we're never going to be in Congress because we never, right. you know, we're never going to even have enough damn money for our stocks to be worth much. Right, so right. it's not, you know, but I think it is just interesting, especially the timing of Tuberville and his, you know, 
flagrant uh, <laughs> uh, ignoring <laughs> of transparency and and regulations in terms of his trading, while at, at the same time, uh, you know, acting as if these coal miners in Alabama yeah. are just living high on the hog. Yeah, bonkers. Um, Early in February, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Postal Service Reform Act by an amazing 342 to 92 in the in the U.S. House of Representatives. That is crazy. It's it's amazing to see anything. Yeah. Come out of Congress. Like it, that's good and bipartisan. Most right. of the things are either, yeah bipartisan. Yeah, is uh, usually bad. To borrow from George Carlin, yeah, usually means you're getting screwed harder than normal. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, it is it is quite shocking in a pleasant way to see Congress moving on something in a positive direction. Among other things, the bill will mandate six-day delivery, which DeJoy had sought to pull back, uh, which would have further weakened the ability of the Postal Service to perform. It will repeal the mandatory pre-funding of retiree health care, which was a requirement placed on the agency in a 2006 law that forced the agency to pre-fund retiree health care 75 years in the bank. They had to ha- uh, uh, 75 years in advance. They had to have the money for retiree health care 75 years in the future. They had to have the money for the health care of retirees that are not even born yet. And, and let's just be clear why that was done is is to penalize the Postal Service. Right. And, uh, you know, that goes back to our discussions on privatization and the ways right. in which uh, folks will sabotage public services in the public sector and then say, hey, look, look at this mess we made. We told you this thing was broken. Right. Now we need to privatize it to fix it. Every time you hear that the Postal Service is running a deficit, know that like 90-something percent of the deficit is because of that health care prefunding right. mandate. That's it. If they didn't have to have this, which no other federal agency and no other private company has to do because it's ridiculous, um, the uh, if they didn't have that, they would be operating in uh, – they would not be operating at a deficit, which operating at a deficit in and of itself for a government agency is not an issue. Like, the, like we did not create the Postal Service to make a profit. We created the Postal Service to – connect people and to have an easy way for people to communicate and um and and it still serves a very important function so you know uh it moves to the senate now where according to politico it also enjoys bipartisan support so i'm getting very hopeful and i'm almost worried that i'm so hopeful (laughs) because it's not often that you can get republicans on board to support good functioning of government so this is a big win for the workers of the postal service and the people that rely on it if it passes uh uh, president frederick rolando of the national association of letter carriers called the passage a huge victory for the american people who rely on the postal service for affordable and high quality universal service so hopefully uh we see that pass in the senate and something good happens. <laughs> yeah, and I hope it's the foundation for more 
progress because I know Bernie Sanders and many others over the years have long advocated for uh, savings accounts at the Postal Service. And as a way to really kill two birds with one stone, it would support the Postal Service by expanding its services. uh, And, and of course, that means it's more likely to stay, especially in rural areas where they have shut down so many post offices and at the same time give uh, low-income folks and, and other folks an easy reliable way to get into banking um, in a way that's not meant to fleece folks. Yeah. Which, of course, is one of the main reasons it hasn't happened yet, uh, because it's not a a means to exploit folks. It's just a means to serve the public. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. Glad to see it. I hope we see more of it. Uh, Governor Ivey, despite not having weighed in on behalf of United Launch Alliance workers in Decatur who were fired for not getting vaccinated, many of whom had legitimate medical exemptions and all of whom had legitimate exemptions under the contract that was agreed to by the company. Despite not having weighed in on behalf of the workers in Alabama's longest strike, Governor Kay Ivey has weighed in on behalf of Canadian truckers <laughs> who oppose vaccine mandates. She joined a letter with, I believe, 18 other governors to President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau requesting that they reinstate the vaccination exemptions, which, frankly, like, I'm not opposed to that. If you've heard our coverage on the um, on the situation at United Launch Alliance, uh, we are very sympathetic to people who... Um, at the very least, to people who have legitimate medical exemptions. There's no vaccine in the world that needs to have or that scientists would say should have 100% um, vaccination rate. Like, that's just not a thing that we need, and it's not a thing that the vaccines are meant to do. And so there are legitimate medical exemptions, and ULA fired people for that, and I think that those should be respected. And... I'm even sympathetic. I won't speak for Adam here, but I'm even sympathetic to people who have deeply held religious or other convictions for it um, because uh, I, I think that testing and and masking is an adequate substitute for vaccination in the case of somebody who has like one of those beliefs, even if and it, and it would be rooted in misinformation. Um, I just haven't seen the evidence that. Uh, mandatory vaccination is going to of of everybody is going to greatly increase or even increase at all other people's safety. Um, others have convincingly argued that, uh, including in places that that we're allied with, like Strikewave, um, and and there's an article by them linked in the show notes that vaccine mandates are important personal protective equipment. And that we wouldn't, for example, oppose the discipline and ultimately the termination of a worker who flagrantly violated other safety protocols and put other people in danger. And, you know, that's a convincing argument. But for me, it just seems that there there are substitutes for vaccination in a way that there are not with other safety protocols. Like if you're operating heavy machinery that render as much, if not more protection to others than a vaccine mandate, you know. You being vaccinated, there is not anything else that you can do as an individual to protect. Based on what we know now, there's not anything that you can do as an individual that will protect yourself from death um, more than getting a vaccine. 
Like, that's clear. Uh, but as far as protecting other people, it does seem like um, regular testing, weekly testing, and wearing N95 masks, it seems like that is going to do more, actually, to protect other people from transmission than even getting a vaccine. And so I'm just really, 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 really hesitant to say that you can't have your livelihood if you're not willing to do this thing if I'm not shown like clear and conclusive evidence that it's going to drastically improve the lives of others. Um, but well, I, I want to yeah. say on that point, though, we, we do have these type of mandates in many capacities and, in, right. and across many industries. Uh, you know, I have a daughter in kindergarten. We had to show proof of her shots before mm-hmm. they would let her in kindergarten. Uh, same with those of us who, of course, work in schools and uh, and and healthcare and and numerous industries. There's all sorts of various mandates you could call them. Uh, so yeah, I I, I definitely uh, I hear where you're coming from, and I don't disagree with you on that. I, I would just add that it's worth remembering right. that this isn't like totally out of nowhere. It's not completely unprecedented. There are folks who are already subject to various sorts of mandates. I mean, hell, this 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 talk about one we don't we're not really supposed to talk about, which is drug testing. Yeah, um, <laughs> we have people who you know are getting yeah, paid no kidding less than a living wage and have to piss in a cup, uh, but to, so that their employer knows what they may or may not have been up to within the past what one to two weeks. Right. I mean, that's bizarre. Um, yeah. So you that's know, true. So yeah, and and you know. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you, and I, I also think that um, that context is important because there there are people who w- who would kind of have you believe, and 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 I can even I can even forget sometimes that context that oh, like oh yeah, this isn't actually necessarily the craziest thing that we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, so that's not to discount that it's a legitimate issue, but um, I think there's been a lot of vested interest in making this out like it's this brand new controversy uh, yeah. and, and separating it from other contexts because we're all subject to all sorts of government mandates. Right. Uh, you know, if you would like to have transportation, mm-hmm. you, know, you you have to go through the hoops to get a driver's license. You have to obey the traffic laws. Uh, a red light is a mandate. Uh, right. You know, so – yeah, I, I think there's just been a lot of uh, manufactured controversy around this, and that's one of the most frustrating things is how much of this seems to be yeah, manufactured. Let's just get people riled up and pissed off and, and arguing over this as right. opposed to – and I, I heard a little bit about this uh, from, from Professor Richard Wolf recently on Economic Update, and he talked about how much of the focus has been – really absorbed by the mandate controversy, mm-hmm. setting aside the ways in which the pandemic response itself was totally bungled by by right. multiple levels of government and by most, if not all, employers just about. Um, and it has sort of erased some of that, I think, from our memory. Um, how many people died who didn't have to with better right. policy? How many people suffered and died because they had callous employers who just didn't give a crap and no one was making them give a crap. So that's that's just that's my two cents on that. Yeah. 
Uh, unfortunately, just reinstating the vaccination exemption is not what these truckers are asking for. Um, their official statements on the matter from people who are like kind of leaders. There are various demands from all sorts of people, including like the resignation of Justin Trudeau. Uh, but as a group, it seems like the two demands are a total reverse reversal on all COVID protocols and a removal of contact tracing when you re-enter the country. Um, and that's just like Looney Tunes. I mean, that's, uh, there's that doesn't make any sense. Um, and, you know, especially if you're like if you're trying to come at people trying to get them to be sympathetic to you um you have to like you have to be willing to give like be an adult and like come to the table and compromise and say okay look i have i have really really uh my thoughts about the vaccine are really deep and like i'm wrong but i'm really hard-headed about being wrong so i'll wear a mask because like it doesn't you know it's not a big deal to wear a mask because I'm not three, you know, <laughs> I'm not a child. Uh, but they're not doing that. They are being toddlers, and they're saying, "No, we have to get rid of everything." Um, and and also, that's crazy. I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's my understanding that across Canada, about nine in ten truckers are already vaccinated. That is true. These are a serious minority of so, truckers, right. and they do not. These demands do not hold the support of the um, of the Canadian populace. Most people are in favor of some amount of COVID protocols because, like, we're adults and <laughs> there's a pandemic, and uh, it's not unreasonable. I'm not saying. That um, uh, I'm not saying that you should never go out again, but, you know, it's not crazy to wear a mask, it, it, you know, or it's not crazy to maybe not go to the club one weekend when a wave is coming through. You know, I mean, like there there's just there are things that that seem reasonable. Um, and it's also worth noting the impact that the convoy has had on other workers, protesters, uh, a according to a Canadian auto workers union. Protesters are denying workers access to their jobs and economic security, including thousands of uniform members, a Canadian auto workers union said in a statement. Um, and there have been auto factories in the U.S. and in Canada that have had to shut down and people lost their wages because of because of this. Um, other unions, such as the Teamsters and IFPTE, have also denounced the convoy primarily because of their association with extreme right-wing factions um there was one video that i saw online that this this woman was asking the crowd presumably rhetorically are there any white I, uh, you know they, they keep telling us there are a bunch of white supremacists here are there any white supremacists in the crowd and her goal was to get an a silence like nobody respond so that she could say oh yeah see look these people are crazy we're not white supremacists but then the crowd erupted and, <laughs> and said yeah we're right here and she just like went on with her bit and said yeah see we're just patriotic canadians like we're yeah that that's the really <laughs> that's the disturbing thing is uh the far right connections uh who are behind this right uh, and, you know, of course, there's a, a good deal of American right wing money that's also funding this. Um, 
So, yeah, folks who are flying swastikas, they're not on my side. Confederate flags in Canada? Yeah, they're they're not on my side. Uh, I'm not on their side. Uh, Interestingly enough, you know, in our conversation with Yaffe, he mentioned something about more or less, he supports the content, but not the tactics. And if mm-hmm. anything, I'm probably the opposite. Yeah, I su- uh, <laughs> I, the tactics are based, but the yeah, contents are wacky. I, I mean, because, uh, and I, I'm certainly sympathetic to what the auto workers union is saying that mm-hmm. you know these folks are blocking us from getting to work. But you could say the same about Black Lives Matter protest and and protests right. more on our side, so to speak. Uh, you could say that about picket lines blocking right. scabs from crossing the line so you know i see where that argument can be used in multiple ways I, the the tactics themselves yeah i think are, are tactics divorced from what their goals are mm-hmm. you know it is it's maybe not that relevant because in this case um I don't think they entirely know what they're for. Uh, it seems yeah. to me, it seems to be very scattered. Mm-hmm. There are definitely far right elements who are sort of behind this thing. I'm sure there's just ordinary folks who've been wrapped up in it over vaccines or other issues, or maybe they just don't like Trudeau. Um, you know, I, it seems to be a mixture of all that. I'm not right. uh, demanding law and order over there. I'm um, just like, I wouldn't hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's it is interesting though seeing, you know, someone like Kay Ivey, Alabama governor, come yeah. out in favor of these folks. Yeah, while ignoring the, the, these kind of issues right here in her own state, right. uh, and while her own legislature is busy trying to criminalize protest movements, Pro- I mean, protest movements far less disruptive than what these guys are doing, right? Yeah, and and you know you mentioned law and order. Uh, the way in that the Canadian government is responding now, after weeks of like totally letting them go, and the cops like taking selfies with the demonstrators yeah, yeah. and hanging after, out with them. After weeks of this, they have issued unilateral authority to the banks to freeze protesters' account without a warrant, without investigation, and with complete immunity to the banks should they accidentally freeze the account of the wrong person. That's insane. Yeah. That's crazy. That's absolute. like, that is way, that's insane. Like, I would be less scared of the cops marching in and arresting these people. Like, Freezing your bank accounts without a warrant and with total immunity to the institutions, that's crazy. That's and, and, if, and if they're willing to use it against this, you know, of probably course. mostly astroturfed right wing demonstration, uh, we already know it's right. going to be used against indigenous pipeline protesters and against criminal justice protesters. It's going to be directed at the other side. Yeah. So those are, you know, those are some of our thoughts. As you can see, like, we're not, you know, we're uh, partially because, like, this isn't even in our country, much less our state. Um, You know, we're not super solid on. uh, But those are some of our initial thoughts. In other trucker news, though, there's a huge strike by hundreds of truckers in the Seattle area that is not getting nearly the attention that the anti-vaxxers in Canada have. They've been on strike now for a few months. Teamsters Local 174, I believe. Uh, They've been on strike for a few months, mainly over retiree health care. 
and and here's the the catch in the negotiations. The workers want to save retirees $6,000 a year out of their own pay. The workers from their paychecks want to send retirees like they want to take away $6,000 a year of their premiums. And the company won't expect won't accept the language even though it won't cost them a penny. That's crazy. And that they've held out for months um, over that is even crazier. But because, because of the, the juxtaposition here, it's worth noting a couple differences between this and the Canadian trucker convoy. This the strikes, by their nature, have majority support in the workplace or the industry that they're at, which is not something that we can say for the Canadian trucker convoy. There is an there is an amount, you know, we mentioned about the um you know, you mentioned that picket lines like they 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 stop scams from going into work. And, you know, there's an amount of democratic legitimacy to that that is simply not there in the Canadian trucker convoy. It's just simply not there. It's also over material benefits and there is a connection to the community, whereas these are truckers from like all over Canada swarming a residential neighborhood and um, and blockading a a um, and how many a of bridge? A, how many of them are even truckers? Right. So that's something to keep in mind. You can read more about that in Kim Car- Kim Kelly's article in The Nation. Uh, that's also linked in the show notes. Um, so the last thing that we wanted to do before we wrapped up here in overtime, we've got a listener voicemail. Adam, can you play the voicemail for us? Hey, guys, this is Jack um, calling from Georgia. Um, I just wanted to say I really love the show, and I especially love the episode you did uh, about uh, organizing and, and sort of looking at it from uh, a union being a third party versus being part of the union. Um, when I last lived in the UK, which is about 10 years ago, I was part of the communication workers union working for British Telecom. And, you know, I enjoyed being in the union. I, they helped me a lot. I almost got fired a couple of times and the union helped me. But I definitely had that feeling where I felt like the union was sort of this third party thing. I mean, I never thought about it except for in relation to maybe a specific time when I needed them. But in my day to day, I didn't know any, anyone who was in leadership in the, in, the, in the union. So that's definitely something that I'm thinking about now. And uh, secondly, I just wanted to ask, I'm an ultrasound tech, um, obviously not unionized here in Georgia, but um, have you guys done any episodes about union organizing within healthcare, specifically within ultrasound? Um, thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Thank you, Jack from Georgia by way of the UK. We appreciate you listening to the show. And it, it is a very important thing to, to point out that uh, the union is the workers, even whether or not the workers like realize it, you know, like you mentioned, you kind of conceived of the union as a third party, but the union only derived the ability to save you from being fired because you were a member and because your coworkers are a member. So uh, it is important that unions foster that understanding among their members that uh, that, that that unions are the workers. Um, and we've been clear on the show that at times uh, some unions and, and some leaderships of some unions foster the third party kind of angle and, mm-hmm. you know, have sometimes it's what they think is the practical thing to do uh, to maintain membership. Uh, sometimes it's 
out of self-interest and to kind of preserve their own power and to be a big fish in a small pond, right? Yeah. Because the more democratic your union, the more people are engaged, the more people uh, know what they're voting on when your name rolls on along on the ballot. So, you know, those are those are legitimate issues inside of our own movement. Um, but I, I do think that you've touched on something, which is that I think the default position for a lot of folks who join a union is to see it as a service or to see it as another organization. You know, yeah, they belong to it, but like I'll call you when I need you kind of thing. Right, right. Um, so I think having the constant engagement and getting new people involved and, and taking it upon yourself, even if you're just a rank and file member, you don't have to hold a position or run for office to do things, to do union things, to, you know, grab two or three coworkers and and have a drink after work or have some coffee after work, before work and, and start talking and come up with ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as for have we ever done anything on organizing in the healthcare industry? Yes, we have. The one of the first interviews that we did actually. Um and so the audio and I don't know why the audio was so much worse in the radio station as opposed to at Spice Radio because like that's a professional like they they were actually literally the same microphones in the radio but so I don't know what the deal is there, but the audio is not quite as good. Um, but w the, some of the first interviews that we did were with uh, union nurses from Pennsylvania, the and and those are going to be linked in the show notes. But the first one was with two nurses from Pennsylvania. Um, all the nurses were members of PASNAP, the uh, Pennsylvania Association of Staff Nurses and Allied Professions. Um, the first interview was with Bill and Joe. Um, one of them was conservative and the other was like ultra liberal liberal uh, is what he called himself. And they and they talked about how, like, despite their political differences, the union has been very important for them and has even allowed them to respect each other as individuals. They talked about their fight against um, the big mega corporation that bought their community hospital and tried to institute staff cuts and um, and and resource cuts and stuff like that uh and we also talked to uh carla lacoin she was another pennsylvania nurse and she talked about so we talked to bill and joe um while they were i believe they had just won um no they had won a union election and they were negotiating a contract and we talked to carla immediately after she won her election i think i don't know it's been so long since we've had those but those were very good conversations and in fact the conversation uh that we had with bill and joe was one of our fate was one of my favorite interviews that i've done and i'm constantly even though it was like a year and a half ago i'm still calling back to it so those are in the show notes i recommend giving them a listen but good reminder. Uh, we need to. We need, we need to have to, some more. Nurses yeah, on, yeah, yeah. It's great to great to talk to people from different industries. We need to get some more healthcare folks on. Um, you know, and I, I know in terms of healthcare, the most exciting union from my perspective is National Nurses United. It seems like mm -hmm. they um, have a lot of energy and and are right. really um, moving in a good direction. But you know, that's that's coming from a total outsider. So. Yeah, take that for what read, it's worth. But 
Jane McAlevey has written a lot about nurses unionizing in her books. I'd recommend reading some of those. Um, Raising Hell and Raising Expectations by Jane McAlevey. Um, no Shortcuts. Good books. Very good books. So uh, that is it for today's episode of the Valley Labor Report. We appreciate your time. If you would like to help us stay on the air, uh, you can make a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation on unionly.io slash o slash tvlr your support really does help and if you would like to leave us a voicemail share your thoughts on the contents of today's episode or ask us a question the phone number is 844-899-tvlr that's 844-899-8857 my name is jacob morrison my co-host is adam keller and we will see you next week (laughs) 